Texas talking oh. What was that that you said? Texas talking oh. Gonna hoop upside your head Texas talking Tell me who can you trust When Texas guys This is Patsy Spall, Secretary of the Texas Senate. Before we start this signing die edition of the TribCast, let me call the roll. Aronson, Aguilar, Bethija, Daniel, Dane, Jordan, Langford, Livingston, McLagan, Malowitz, McCullough, Mitra, Murphy, Muto, Pastor, Ramsey, Ramshaw, Reynolds, Rocha, Root, Satija, Smith of Texas, Smith of New York, Svitek, Ura, Walters, and Watkins. And now, here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the Sunny Die edition of the TribCast. In this first week of June, I'm joined by CEO and Editor-in-Chief Evan Smith. Hello. Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Sunny dead. That too. I need the Sunny Diet. Uh, and Reporter <laughs> Patrick Svitek. Hello. You've been carrying that Sunny Diet joke in your pocket for how long? Actually, it just occurred to me yesterday. There you go. But it was pretty good. You've been around Evan Smith too much. This is Clearly. Most, this is the most boring signing die that I can remember. Yes. Well, and not just because of the party. <laughs> <laughs> no, true. But, but that, I mean, it really, it's like everyone just split town. But it, it, it ended with a whimper and not a bang. Well, aside from campus carry and open carry, I mean, was there any really sort of sexy, juicy stuff? I mean, I actually find myself in a rare moment agreeing with Evan Smith. <laughs> That this was oh, a, you do need an intervention. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Take two aspirin. That this was a pretty boring session as these things go. It was, you know, they didn't have a big, giant thing. There wasn't a landmark. There wasn't a big lawsuit that they were facing over this or that or the other thing. They had plenty of money. They didn't run campaigns in 2014 that were based on, you know, lists of things to do. Rather, they were based on ideology and, you know, I'm more conservative than the person I'm running against. And they didn't come out, you know, like George Bush did in 1994 with a list of four things that the legislature had to do in a clear mandate or, you know. So so they got to Austin and they sort of did their job and they, you know, kind of punched in, did their job, punched out and went home. I mean, you know, we came into the session with all this talk about these red meat issues like, you know, repealing in-state tuition for undocumented students. What else could we do on abortion? You know, restrictions, um, vouchers, school vouchers. I, I, I actually – let me – our kumbaya moment is about to come to now, an end. Now that she's agreed with you, you're yeah. going to disagree. I'm going to disagree with you. I actually don't think they came in with a, lo- a well, long Patrick list Well, Patrick came in with. No, I don't think they came in with a long list of sharp elbow items of the sort that you're talking about. In-state tuition accepted. Um, I actually thought that the beginning of the session was marked by the lack of discussion of a lot of those things. Where abortion and same-sex marriage came into play was kind of sneaky fast in the middle of the session. But if you go back to to states of the states and, and inaugural speeches. And you know it was much more about other issues, I think, than the social issues. And really, the, the conversation, if you're going to do a mop-up on this session about those social issues, is you had the votes, you changed the rules, you essentially made the Democrats irrelevant, and you still couldn't get that stuff passed. That's an interesting takeaway from It means from the this Republicans session. don't really want it. They're trying to make a tsunami out of property taxes that wasn't there. I mean, I think people are right. really really worked up about property taxes. When we polled in February in the UT Texas Tribune poll, property taxes are the least popular taxes. And voters, you know, if you say, do you want a tax cut or not, they always say yes. But it turned out that two of every three dollars for the tax cut went to uh, cutting the business franchise tax by 25%. The cuts in property taxes only go to homeowners 
and they're relatively meager. It's a $10,000 addition to the homestead exemption that amounts to about 126, 127,000, 126 or $127 per year. Um, and people didn't really get excited about it. I mean, the original push from the Senate looked like a property tax cut, uh, limits on rollbacks, let's really curtail the ability of city and school and county governments to raise taxes and really go at this, and it kind of fizzled. But, but to, to back to Emily's point, though, on the social stuff, you know, it, we have with us our Tea Party bureau chief here, uh, uh, Svitek, <laughs> um, whose bestie, Joanne Fleming, pronounced this session to be actually uh, a bad. You had a lot of people actually to the to the farthest right in the state who have graded this session unfavorably for all of the sure, boring... Yeah. yeah, boy, Jonathan Stickland gave it's it a, a C+. Plus. Plus. Yeah, and C she plus. actually gave it a worse grade. Didn't she give the... Uh, I think it was a failing grade. A I don't failing know. It was definitely grade. lower than a C plus. I yeah. don't know how if they're all working on a, a uniform scale. Is that great inflation? I mean, somewhere in here, is that an assessment of the session or is that a preparatory remark for the campaigns ahead? It's interesting because I think... The people who are saying that uh, you know that that it was a poor session are more of the activist base. The people who are already looking forward to the the primary season. Um, you know, if you talk to conservative elected officials like you know Dan Patrick, you know yesterday on radio he said it's the most conservative session the Senate has had in in, in history. The Senate that is. But um, he's camp. So I mean, they're, they're, all yeah, they're all campaigning. Yeah. But does anybody? <laughs> but hold on. Does anybody take issue with that? I'm I'm not the Senate historian. But, what, what was liberal in there? Yeah, right? I mean, it's sure. pretty damn conservative. Well, uh, yeah, it was pretty damn conservative. But I would say there are previous sessions where more sort of social conservative issues moved than did this session. The question is whether you define conservatism along the abortion, gay marriage axis or whether you well, define it along I the economic the, I think the Tea Party axis. folks absolutely do. I think the Joanne Flemings of the world, you know, when they're giving this a failing grade, you know, I, I don't think it's because they didn't address taxes. It's because they didn't address the red meat social or issues. Or they wanted constitutional carry. Yeah, I was going to say, well, so what are those issues that they, they're, they're not happy about? I mean, I think at least activists, you know, anti-Sharia law, which there, I don't think got were, anywhere. There um, were vouchers for sure. The repeal of the You know, uh, some the of the advocacy act. groups counted 20 or 21 bills that would have in some way regulated gay marriage or LGBT mm -hmm. issues, and none of those passed. Right. Um, we hardly got an anti-abortion bill through at all this session. Right. I mean, they, it was, they tightened it, bypass. It was yeah, parental yeah. consent. And to the degree that they're unhappy, let's also acknowledge that where their unhappiness is probably is probably properly residing is on the House side and not the Senate Absolutely. side in that they believe, you know, the um, the uh, it was the House they believe, fairly or unfairly, uh, was was the place that stalled the the activity. On this stuff. I'm not sure, that, I mean, but I'm not entirely sure that that's a legitimate criticism. Well, and a lot of that legislation <clears throat> sat and sat and sat in Senate committees for a long time before. It you know, the moved. idea that the abortion insurance bill didn't pass at the 575 is the is that right was the right. bill number that didn't pass at the end that was a victim of the calendar at the very end for instance to this point a lot of the activists say well the house didn't pass that bill but the house folks push back and say it sat over in the senate it for a while right. it didn't get to the house until may 8th right senate couldn't even bring up sanctuary right. cities if for this a had vote, been an agenda I mean, right it, item for them yeah. high, high on the agenda list it or, is or, it's or, i would say it's it is inaccurate to say that the house was the one delaying some of that high profile legislation again you know ross always says it's about the calendar and it's about how quickly chambers move things out right. you know now if, on in state tuition and on vouchers or choice however you want to define that issue the senate moved with dispatch ish on both of those and the house just didn't do anything with those well but nothing right? came in with you know there wasn't there weren't a lot of issues that got to this legislature when they started in january they didn't come in with a lot of stuff where it was clear voters were demanding x 
You know, so X didn't happen. I mean, did when, voters demand anything? Well, I mean, there wasn't a lot of sand in this. And, you know, so more this, the same thing. Right. And, you know, there were more, more of the same thing. You know, what used to be straight up Tea Party, and by straight up Tea Party, I mean financial and economic issues, sort of the children and grandchildren of Ross Perot. Taxed enough already. Right, is exactly. The, is the and, you know, acronym, a, lot of, right? a lot of that stuff has fallen away a little bit because um, we're in pretty good economic times. They've addressed some debt stuff. They've done some of those things. It's still there, but it's not a high interest issue for voters. Voters clearly aren't particularly interested in ethics reform. Um, voters clearly are, you know, always want a tax cut, but, you know, it was kind of indefined and it was yeah. so small that nobody said, wow, that's real money I can buy a car with. The, I mean, the, the one issue. There for... wasn't something that rolled in that everybody went, holy cow, you've got to do well, this. Well, there was one thing I would actually say, and I think our polling showed this, and I think that the elections of last year showed it, and that was border security. You heard a lot about border security. They came in all full of beans on border security. They ended up passing. They ended all full of beans on border well, security. Well, but they ended right. up, well, it was $800 million worth of beans. That's a lot of beans. That's a lot of beans, yeah. They, they ended up passing, you know, whether it ends up being a successful bill or not, on border security, they moved. But, you know, this drumbeat for open carry, this drumbeat for campus carry, vouchers, overturning in-state tuition, I'm sorry. Unless voters I'm not hearing sure. were clamoring for those things, that seemed like more of a calculation driven by the politicians as opposed to the constituents. And I, I just know, too, as far as looking forward to the primary season and some of these, these red meat issues, I know it was kind of short-lived in the media conversation, but I definitely don't think we've heard the last of the union dues bill. Mm -hmm. I think the rhetoric that's been developing yeah. around that, right. Tea Party people are saying, look, this, is some, this was not some fringe issue. Big business was behind this. Um, you know, those squishes in, in big business, you know, they, they even wanted right. this to happen. Democrat so, Bill Hammond. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that... It'll be interesting to see how that factors into the, the plan going forward. And you're going to have Scott Walker running for president, and Scott Walker is king of the union busters, right? Yeah. So you're going to hear a lot about this conversation at the national level. It's likely to filter down to the state level. Right. So who are we losing after this session? I mean, who are the folks who've basically already come out and said, you know what, I'm not running again? Or who are the folks who uh, are, you know, angling for other office? So goodbye, Jimmy Don Acock. Goodbye, Sylvester Turner. Sylvester goodbye. Turner's running for mayor of Houston. Right. Jimmy Don Acock has decided to... Run to Colorado and watch Hang his out grandchildren with his wife. come in. Right, yeah. exactly. Right. Uh, Mrs. Acock. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, Alan Fletcher from Tomball is not going to run again, uh, may run for local office. He, well, he, in fact, I think run. he said he's running for constable. I think right. so, yeah. Right. Um, I think probably, although he hadn't announced it, I think probably Trey Martinez well, Fisher. And Joe, and Joe, Joe Farias. Fer Joe Farias. Joe Farias right, right. is, is retiring. Right. We, we think that Trey Martinez Fisher is going to take advantage of a Democratic primary as opposed to a special election. Run for Senate. And, and rematch against uh, Jose Menendez uh, in San Antonio uh, in that Senate race that was Leticia Vandepute's old seat. It's, mm -hmm. it's a much different race. You know, the race that put Jose Menendez in there was an open um, special election. So Republicans could vote in it. There wasn't a primary. And now the calculation that Fisher, you know, is, is apparently making is that, you know, if it's just limited to Democrats, I'll do better. Right. I've got a better shot. So, yeah. um, But it is an up or out race. So it, put, it takes him out of the house in any, any case. So. Right. This is not a case where if he runs and loses, he, he gets returns to, keep to his, his seat. Right. Yeah. right. right. You know, calling it's point of orders all gamble. session on, in the House. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and yesterday, then, Troy Frazier, too. Right. Troy yeah. Frazier in the, in the Senate. Troy Frazier. There's been a lot of speculation around El Taif, you so know, Frazier, although he hasn't said anything yet. Frazier has been in the legislature since like 88 or something, right? He was, I mean, in, he was in the, the house, house for seven or eight years and then has been in the Senate for 20. And, you know, his whole his whole history is that he and, and Perry were big buddies back in the day, you know, shared. Back in 4-H. Yeah, shared airplanes. Frazier took his plane and, you know, took Perry around the state when he was running for ag commissioner. I mean, I think that's a longtime Perry legacy person who would be, who's 
you know, headed out the door. And, you know, the, the interesting thing, you mentioned Kevin Eltife, the se- senator from uh, from Tyler, former mayor of Tyler, who is not the most conservative member of the Senate. Is that an adequate description? Yes. Of Senator Eltife, not the most conservative member? Um, he was always among the sort of one or two Republicans. But who, he represents like, you know. a district that is quite right. conservative yeah. and has a number of extremely conservative, grassroots conservative type members mm-hmm. who are probably sitting there with a fork and a knife and a bib waiting to see what happens with his decision. So you've got David Simpson from Longview yesterday who came out and said, I'm making a big announcement, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, On the at the end of June. We believe that he's running... Uh, for L-Type's seat, regardless of whether L-Type's behind is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that Brian Hughes from Mineola— Such, I was a, way, such pa- a way with words. I was interested yes. in Patrick's story yesterday, uh, which reported that Brian Hughes is contemplating a run for that seat, regardless of what happens with L-Type. I had believed, maybe incorrectly, that— well, Brian Hughes no. is— I think Brian Hughes is the one who's, at least publicly, waiting to did, see. Did yes. Hughes' consultant yeah. say that he's looking at the race one way or the other? He's saying it's dependent upon So he, So he's saying it is actually dependent upon. My but understanding was it was dependent on for Hughes. So if L-Type doesn't run, yeah. you think it's possible Hughes, Hughes would not run? Hughes was saying a couple if, weeks if ago. If he does run, you think it's possible he wouldn't run? <laughs> Nobody finishes. Very, very small, yeah. opportunity, very small yeah. possibility. It was spokesman-ease, so... <laughs> yeah, and, and Hughes himself said a couple of weeks ago that he probably wouldn't run against Eltife, but right. he would be very interested if Eltife wasn't running. So if you have no Eltife in that race, you then have the potential for Hughes and Simpson and God knows who else. But in the Fraser case, my point was that in the Fraser case, you know, it's not – it's a, a Senate district that is not full of a bunch of members who are grassroots conservatives. Mo- Molly White accepted. Mm-hmm. You've got people like Acock. Acock, Isaac, Workman, Muir. Um, Susan King. Susan on the King. Other end. Um, these are, you know, these yeah. are these are Republicans. These are self-described. Certainly, they would say uh, we're conservatives. In that but they're J- J.D. Sheffield. But they're not exactly Tea Party guys. Tea Party conservatives. Right. And so the question in that case is: Is mm-hmm. the contest really there among some local people who we don't know at the state level? Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. it may be more of a state-focused thing. 30, in the case of, Thirty-eight uh, or thirty-nine percent of that uh, district's population is in Bell County. The next biggest is Taylor County, Abilene. Uh, it's, it's just part of that. County. So that it's would actually 12%. speak well for Susan King, so, right? So 12% up there. And so, you know, you basically get the fight of the, you know, the fight for the Colorado River. It's, you know, sort of an interesting, right. it's an interesting and strange district and really, really gigantic. I mean, it's really hard to have a base that encompasses that whole district. But boy, and, I and would Drew, love to see David Simpson in the Senate. Oh, it'd be really fun. Yeah. Right. Uh, Drew, Drew Darby is not in we determine that Drew Darby is not in right, and when we say that these Frazier's when we say that all these other people are in the district, all that means is that their districts overlap this district. Their houses might not be in the district. So in fact, every one of those people we name might, might not be. There able might be to a run. bunch of really, really busy realtors in Senate District mm. Twenty Four right now. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So I mean, one of the big questions, obviously, was there was all the speculation that maybe Dan Patrick would run against Greg Abbott. You know, primary Greg Abbott. Um, he made a, an interesting pronouncement this week that he made pretty carefully. What? Was Dan Patrick's uh, line? He's not running for president. No way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. He's he, one of the few. He said, "I'm not running against um, Greg Abbott in 2018. In fact, I don't even want to run for governor." And, and he volunteered it too. It's my understanding. It wasn't right. in response to a reporter's question. He just right. came. He down said, to "Basically, reporters. like this he is going to be my last was, office." He thought the signy die thing was so boring that it needed a bigger <laughs> headline. Well, remember though that I asked him this question back in in, in late January when we had a, an opportunity to sit together at the Austin Club, and he said the same thing. And and remember the the catalyst for this, I think, was a piece that Paul Burke published 
uh, on his blog in te- at Texas Monthly in which he speculated that what Abbott was doing was uh, – pardon me, what Patrick was doing was setting himself up for a challenge to Abbott. I'm not aware of any other serious f- raising of this issue or any evidence beyond the fact that during the session you had some of Patrick's handpicked grassroots people attacking Abbott on things like pre-K. Sure. But I'm not sure that this whole Patrick versus Abbott thing wasn't an, a, a fiction or a figment of uh, Paul Burke's imagination from the very beginning. I think the fight for the Republican Party and for where the Republican Party, which part of the Republican Party is going to be strongest is kind of easy to personify here. And Abbott's not declared. He got, you know, we've talked about this before. He got all the way through his primary last year without saying, I'm with these Republicans or those Republicans, and all the Republicans think he's there. So there's a tug of war kind of going on here with Abbott as the rope. And I think that the whole conversation about will Patrick run against him is people who want to see if he's on the conservative end of that spectrum or not. I think I think it benefits Dan Patrick, not even in a political, I guess in a political sense, but in a practical sense, if he is as serious as getting done in the Senate, what he says he wants to get done, it always benefits him to leave that door cracked open just a little as, as leverage. I mean, I think we'll always, we'll always hear about this. Right, right. But the tension between Abbott and Patrick this session, leaving aside the question of 2018, was a thing. Sure. Right? Yeah. After the grassroots conservatives attacked Abbott on pre-K, apparently the governor wasn't amused. Mm-hmm. There was the famous breakfast in which Patrick complained he was being picked Bullied. on. Well, which yeah. started with the governor saying, I'm not amused. Yeah. But, right, right. But, but, but <laughs> let's back up a step. You know, here. if you roll forward to the 2017 session, which I realize, you know, we're just so happy oh, to have them go gone ahead. now. Let's Let me go it. ahead. Um, what's going to be different in the next session? Um, you know, I, I, I and others joked a couple times over the last few months, this was not the 2015 session, this was the 2011 session, as in 20 to 11, every vote was 20 to 11, or many votes 20 to 11. The math of the next session is not likely to change. You had a total of one Senate seat that was flippable in the last election cycle, Wendy Davis's, and it flipped. Mm -hmm. You look at the 11 seats that the Democrats now have, there's not an obvious seat that's in play among those 11. Now, shit happens, I understand that. But there is not an obvious seat among those 11 that is in play. If there's going to be action in the next election cycle that will change the Senate, it will be trading out Troy Frazier for somebody else. It's going to be inside, possibly trading be, out El Tife. It's going to be inside the for 20. somebody else, or trading out Jose Menendez for Trey Martinez right. Fisher, or not. Right. The from Patrick's perspective, the interesting thing, as I think about the next session and the interim, is as you're planning for what you do next, the math is not going to be markedly different. The rules will not go back to the old rules. You know what the landscape is. And honestly, Eltife, you know, there was a, some sense that there were 18 movement conservatives among the 20, and then there was Seliger and Eltife. Seliger and Eltife showed no signs of really being significantly dis, dis, distant or different from the 18, right? There weren't a, a huge there number were a couple of, of votes. There were a couple of things that didn't come up. Very few. Just a handful of things that didn't come up. Right. There were some things that were, you know, so the so the way the rules work now, it's not the two-thirds rule, it's the 60% rule. And there were some, there were, all you got to have is 12 votes. And there were some 12s. But, there very, were a but very few. Seliger didn't suddenly go, I'm pro-choice. Eltife didn't suddenly go, I'm pro-gay marriage. Where those things didn't happen, they didn't happen not because of the people who are perceived to be less movement-y than the other guys. My point is, you're going to still have 20 Republicans who are mostly in lockstep in the next session. But I it think, did happen on in-state. It did happen on sanctioned cities. It did happen on... But didn't in-state get out of the Senate? No. no. So in-state never... Think, so there was never a, there was yeah. never an in-state yeah. vote in the Senate? I think that's right. Yeah. There were th- three votes keeping it out of... Uh, 
committee, I think, right? I don't think it ever got to the Senate floor. Yeah. That or sanctuary cities. I thought, I, well, sanctuary cities just to the I, I well, thought, I, I, I maybe told myself that in-state got out of the Senate and got killed in the House. Because I think the last. So it never even got out of the Senate. The last major God. headline we heard about was the committee hearing where it went where for like 12 hours. It's, yeah. it's amazing to think going in, maybe I need to revisit what I said earlier. It's amazing to think going in with all the discussion of in-state tuition being a hot button during the 2014 campaign that oh, they couldn't are even you get turning that around to agreeing with me? No, hell no. <laughs> hell to agreeing no. a little bit. Yeah. I do think that, tw- you know, 2013 was a session that had a lot of social issues and there were fewer in 2015. I think we could have be- come back around social issues a lot in 2017 because I bet we get some pretty serious Supreme Court rulings in the interim that, you know. Well, if they legalize gay marriage, for it, instance, There will right? be some kind of gay marriage ruling. I bet there's a, a, a 20-week abortion ban uh, ruling in the Supreme Court. O- overturning? I don't know. I think they're going to be all these different, you know, uh, anti-abortion um, regulations are moving through federal courts or moving up to the Supreme Court. You know, I think we're going to end up seeing some pretty big movement. And I also just think we're starting to see this sort of interesting transition among Republican legislators on certain social issues, whether it's around gay marriage, whether it's around, you know, legalization of pot I think that next session there could be some incredibly interesting social issues at the forefront that will be more entertaining than, say, taxes. The other thing I'll throw in there is um, we're going to have two or three voting rights cases. Right. Well, that's interesting. High courts are going to do voter ID one way or the other. Um, the Texas redistricting case is still open uh, for congressional lines and for state house lines. I wouldn't be surprised to see something on that this summer. There's a new redistricting case that's up. The school finance case is out there. And I'm curious if we're going to have all of these fights, you know, kind of as you point out, within the 20, do any of the statewide officials um, play, obviously or not obviously, in Republican primaries next time? I like this one and not that well, one. For, what, is, what does Dan Patrick do? Does so, he try to formulate his own Republican majority inside the Republican So, a, so as we sit, here on, stuff, we sit here on like Wednesday the 3rd, I'm going to interview Patrick tomorrow morning the 4th. If... If I were preparing the lieutenant governor for such a conversation, I might say, have an answer ready when you're asked, are you going to endorse in Republican <laughs> primaries? Or are you going to observe the friendly incumbent rules so that if a Republican challenges an incumbent Democrat, you're going to stay out of it? And if he stumbles on that question and finds out it was on the podcast before he was even up there, <laughs> right somebody's exactly. going somebody's to get in trouble. That's right. <laughs> so uh, what has Abbott vetoed so far? I mean, we're in that nice period where we all sort of wait and see what happens. Has there been anything high profile? Are we anticipating well, he, anything? He first vetoed that resolution and then the language, as, as some people have noted, made it into other bills. This I was think, a mental health yeah, resolution. Directing, I think, mental health professionals to use a certain guidebook or book of standards. Um, and that language, I believe, made it into other bills that are, I think, made it out of both chambers and are waiting the governor's signature. He just thought those should be a bill and not a resolution. Sure. Yeah, I don't think he vetoed that. Did he veto? He didn't veto that on the merits. He vetoed sure, it because yeah. this, this resolution yeah, this is resolution trying to sneak a law, law. in. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. And so then we had the two bills yesterday, and one of them dealt with um, uh, people who call 911 or alert medical emergency services during a drug overdose when it's not them. Um and that would have given them a defense if they were prosecuted for possessing small amounts of a drug uh, throughout that process. Um, Abbott, I think he just raised, uh, I believe he said that it was just generally too lenient, I guess, and um, to not have adequate, adequate safeguards for people who are dr- habitual drug abusers. Uh, and the second one yesterday was about, um, a little more interesting, about temporary emergency detention of people who try to, I guess, flee medical treatment centers um, I guess physicians felt like they were powerless 
and it was it was too time consuming of a process to bring in a, a peace officer. So Whose bill was that? Oh man, I don't. Was that, that the Ryan Guillen bill? Because I, I tell you, my favorite moment from this whole veto period is Ryan. <laughs> I think Guillen's the other one hissy, was Ryan yeah. Guillen's hissy fit on Twitter. I would say. Did you see that? I did. Well, he the, the drug one was. He was said. Ryan I mean, and, and he said in our story that he had assurances from the governor. I was told the governor said the our my bill was safe. <laughs> well, this would be funny, but it was interesting because some of the early reviews of how Abbott was was working with the legislature back in February and March or whatever was that. He wasn't like Rick Perry, and he wouldn't blindside anybody with vetoes. And, and this is one of the first vetoes. Well, Ryan and, Guillen immediately yeah. uh, uh, gave <laughs> the lie that he's claimed that that's not the yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, the good news is on the heels of a legislative session, we uh, don't get much of a break, and we head right back into good uh, news in quotes. <laughs> yeah, right. Good news for uh, Patrick. Right. So sure. Patrick is heading up to Dallas this week for a small event. Yeah, Governor Perry is uh, likely announcing his uh, second presidential campaign uh, tomorrow just outside Dallas. Uh, is that wrong? Dallas. Did we have that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, he's going to be doing it at Addison Airport, which is, uh, I think, I believe a small executive airport just in Why the there? of Dallas. What's um, the, I mean, is there, honestly, you know, I know Paint Creek is hard to get to. <laughs> But why Addison? I, you know, you can land a jet there. It's you it's know like an easy cab ride from city. Love Field. It's yeah, it is strip mall city. It's, why didn't why not actually do it at Love Field? I don't know how that works logistically. I, yeah, I've ask. never held a, a campaign announcement. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not an advanced man myself. <laughs> right. Love Field is very nice. It I might nice. I might want to do it there. <laughs> yeah, you could have it in the old Love Field. Um, but he's going to be surrounded by these these kind of military heroes, people like Marcus Luttrell, who obviously has he has a personal relationship with. Uh, Mrs. American Sniper, whatever. Tana Kyle. And so I think that's obviously just going to highlight this this theme that he's been hammering nonstop, which is that he has military experience. No one else besides Lindsey Graham has that. And so it's his, his calling card. And so I'm sure he's going to be going all in on that theme tomorrow. We'll hear a lot about how he his mother made his underwear again. You know, my <laughs> humble roots in Paint Creek. I was, you know, I was born underwear. naked. In, I'll in see the Lindsey Graham growing up in the back of a pool hall and right. raise you. No running water. Right. Well, I mean, he's got military experience, which stands out. He's also going to say he's going to talk a lot about his executive experience, yeah. which, you know, all of these senators are missing. Um, you know, I, what's it, the over under on how quickly we have an oops joke from him? It won't yeah. be tomorrow. You don't, don't think it'll be, be tomorrow? More, you don't, you don't think it'll be tomorrow? I think he would make like people. I would think he would like people to have forgotten about that by now. You know, he's been making so many speeches, but right. I mean, does anybody give a crap at this point? There's been so many candidates. But you, you know. but you understand that one of the challenges for him is going to be the legacy of the last campaign and whether oh, he's sure. able to move past it to the point that people don't think of him as that guy; they think of him as this guy. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's what's sticking, what's still sticking with some voters. Not necessarily the the, the oops moment of the campaign, but just the the legacy of the campaign. The, over, the like, overall, you know, bumbling right. and uh, oops was just punctuation, know. right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well. He's polling down at like two percent or something in this very crowded field. I mean, yeah. it's good news these days when the poll comes out and he's ahead of Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah at least he's at two. Right. He was ahead of Chris Christie nationally the other day, I think. Well, um, you know, this this round. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what that means. <laughs> <laughs> got, you know, as, as long as they have this many optimist. candidates on the Republican <laughs> side, the the first round of this is an elimination round. It's not. It's you don't have to outrun anybody. You just have Correct. to not be yeah. the slowest caribou, right? And and. People are going to, until you get down to five or six candidates and you've got, you know, a clear set of conservatives and a clear set of, you know, establishment types and whatever, we're not going to know who the candidates mm-hmm. really are. There's going to be a bunch of people that get whacked in the early rounds here. I mean, I was talking Perry's to just trying to tell you a, a consultant this week who was saying that he'd recommended that Perry just, you know, 
skip Iowa and New Hampshire and spend all of his time and energy in South Carolina, you know, try to hang on there and then make the southern states Had work that work for out him. for Rudy Giuliani. Not it's well. Yeah. The food's better. The food is better, what, for what, sure. What's your problem with corn dogs, chief? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well. Sunny diet. Yeah, exactly. Back to that. Yeah. So anyway, polling down at 2%, I mean, what's, what are his finances looking like? Who, Where is he getting his money to stay on the road? I think he's, he's going to be well-funded, I think. I mean, he, he had a lot of friends last time around, and this time he'll still have some friends, um, and they're still very wealthy friends. Um, but like the story we did over the weekend shows, I mean, his biggest challenge is just finding his footing in this, this new campaign finance world, which has shifted dramatically even since last time. Obviously, he has a, a super PAC just like he did last time. But here in Texas, it's the, the competition has been uh, so fierce and earlier than usual. And um, you have a lot of big, big donors in Texas giving to multiple candidates. I mean, you know, they're giving a lot of people giving to both Perry and Cruz because, you know, they hedging they, their bets. And, and also they don't want to, uh, you know, they want to upset a sitting senator. I mean, if, right. if Cruz, uh, you know, does not win the, the presidential race, he's probably going to be in the Senate for a long time and, and gain a lot of influence. Although, you know, instantly that not. didn't work for David Dewhurst. The argument with Dewhurst was in the Senate race against Cruz. Well, you better give to Dewhurst because if he wins, he's senator. And if sure. he loses, yeah, he's lieutenant true. governor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all that money didn't ultimately help him. But True, I, true I, for a minute. But I grant you the point that for Perry it's going to be much more challenging because the competition at a high level for these mm-hmm. donors is, is greater. L- l- last time, the field was much weaker on paper. Mm-hmm. This time, the field is much stronger on paper. So it's not Perry fundraising against Michelle Bachman or Perry fundraising against 999. What was his name? Um Herman Cain. Herman Cain. Wow. He's fundraising. He's fundraising he's a, he's a, he's a, against uh, against Jeb Bush and against Marco Rubio and against Rand Paul and against a lot of people who are playing a much at a much higher level and a much more skilled game. And a lot of the people who are fundraising for those people are people who were not really involved with the minor campaigns last time. I think to some extent the busy, packed field delays the finance primary a little bit and puts it behind the debate yeah. mm-hmm. primary. If you can get onto the debate stage, if you can get out of the digital dust right. that Emily's talking about, you know, from 2% up to the 11% or wherever they draw the line on who gets on stage, the people who get on stage are going to get money. And a lot of the donors have a reason to stay out. You know, look, there's 18 candidates. I like a lot of these people. I'm going to wait a little while. Yep. Perry, Perry has to get rid of the, his, he has to stay alive, yep. just stay, you know, around. He has to get rid of the indictment. And he has to get on the debate stage. And if he does those three things, the money will do come. Do you really think the indictment is a thing yes. right now? Yeah, when you get down to yeah, you and I've been disagreeing when, when about you this, get down to when you get down yes. to a handful of candidates, if Perry's still in that handful and you're looking for qualifiers and disqualifiers, you know, the guy's the guy's under indictment. That's a disqualifier. I think that uh, that uh, Rosemary Lemberg or uh, uh, who is the Michael McCrum are less of a problem for Perry going forward than John Kasich and Chris Christie. I All actually, John Kasich and Chris Christie are going to talk about is... But I actually think that the problem right. for Perry is not back home. The problem is that the field is going to be so crowded. For somebody, you know, as Ross says, this is a Hunger Games type deal. Mm-hmm. There are only going to be a couple people left by the time this movie is over. And if you look at the national poll that came out, not this, maybe the Washington Post ABC one, mm-hmm. The four at the top were Walker, Rubio, Bush, and Paul. And somebody tweeted about it. I don't remember who it was. That that top four, that's your top four who is going to be uh, – that will be in it. And I'm not sure that I believe it's going to be right. those four. But that, basically the top four, those are the ones who are going to get out of that early round of primaries. You've got to really work hard in a field this large to differentiate yourself 
from these other guys. And I think Perry's big challenge is not going to be all the stuff that may or may not be back here. I think Perry's big challenge is like, like for instance, the Democrats or the progressives this week with, with Perry getting in the race sent out a thing saying, oh, you know, Rick Perry's in anticipation of Rick Perry getting in the race. Here is Rick Perry's lousy record back home. Like nobody cares about that. Sure. Perry's problem is not what happened in the last 15 years. Perry's problem is what's going to happen in the next 15 months and who else is in the race and how he vaults up above those people. So I actually think his big challenge is going to be not just the guys who are in the race, but people who are still yet to get in the race. And it's about money, but it's also about what's your brand? When, when, what is your brand in this primary? One small point of disagreement, next five months. Because it's not even going to matter. The cutting contest the is the next five months. Well, I think the debate, the debate criteria, getting having to be in that top ten does matter, right? I right. think he, I think he's doing okay in the, in the debate primary. I mean, he is a former high-profile presidential candidate. Yeah. A lot of people remember Rick Perry for better or for worse last time but around. But you've got to get on stage. Got to get on stage. True, true. He's polling better nationally than he is in, in Iowa, or the early states. All right. Well, if you would like to get on stage and disagree with Ross and Evan. Oh, my God. These transitions. You can disagree with Emily or Patrick. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to. You can email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. Also, uh, check back for our presidential podcast hosted by Jay Root and Ben Philpott. It's called The Ticket. Uh, We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Evan, Ross, Patrick, and our producer, Jacob, thanks for listening. Texas talking. Yeah, I mean Didn't he was like leathery. He was like buddy, a buddy, buddy, but when you hear his, but cowboy. when you hear his voice, you're certain. <sighs> <sighs> it's like I mean, tales I, from I, the crypt.